Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox podcast. And you can find my work on MyersDetox.com and download a bunch of free e-guides if you want to join my newsletter that we, we you know, email pretty frequently and give you all the latest cutting edge information and tools about health and detoxification. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. Today, we have a really good show. We have Dr. Sam Shea. He's always so interesting. It's such a good show. Really, really funny because he's a stand-up comedian also. And we talk about how to determine your ideal diet through genetics and uh, Dr. Sam Shea's five, five kind of tier, five layer, uh, you know, five different factors to determining your optimal diet. So he's, he's developed this framework that has five different steps on it, five different layers uh, to help you, you know, really think about what is the best diet for you. So uh, we go over to all, we go over all of those based on genetics. We, it's based on, you know, how your diet impacts the planet, your personal preference. Uh, we go into, if it's a therapeutic diet for you, just a lot of, a lot of different uh, things that help you make distinctions in uh, determining your ideal diet. And there's a lot to it. So we talk about the paleo diet, the keto diet, a, hard carb, a high carbohydrate diet, the you know vegan diet, the vegetarian, and a lot of different uh, concepts, you know, histamines, food sensitivities. There's a lot of really good distinctions that you're gonna make on today's show. It's really, really good. Um, and I know you guys listening, you're concerned about detoxification, how heavy metals may be affecting your digestion, affecting your, your immune system and your overreactions to foods and food sensitivities. Uh, so I created a heavy metals quiz uh, that you can take at heavymetalsquiz.com. Takes just a couple of minutes, you get your results and then you get a free video series all about you know, how to detox your body, how long does it take? And a lot of videos on that you know, answer your frequently asked questions about detoxing your body. So check it out, heavymetalsquiz.com. So our guest today is Dr. Sam Shea. Uh, he's a doctor of chiropractic and he helps busy health conscious entrepreneurs and mompreneurs attain and sustain high performance. So they can create more freedom for themselves and for others. And he has dedicated his life to helping others through functional medicine and functional genomics or genetics. And so Dr. Shea has uh, walked his own health journey from being chronically unwell from age six to 18 including severe fatigue, anxiety, digestive problems, pain, severe insomnia, and poor nutrition. And so he's dedicated his life to natural medicine to get himself and others well, which led him to functional medicine and functional testing. So Dr. Shea has recently authored a new book on genetics that where you can learn about the, the different types of genetics-based weight gain, um, how to future-proof your brain, food triggers, how to genetically determine your optimal carb tolerance, vitamin D absorption and immunity support. So you can get your free copy and learn more about Dr. Shea and his work at drsamshea.com slash genetics. Dr. Shea, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's great to be back. I really enjoyed our conversation last time. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you got into health, a little bit about your story. Sure. So like many people in this space, I got started because of my own health issues. So mine started quite young. And uh, specifically when I was six years old and my parents had a nuclear divorce to which me and my sisters were caught in the blast radius. And it triggered uh, a 12 year period where I had severe crippling insomnia. I, do, uh, I had an eating disorder. Uh, I had I was a sugar addict. I was also a video game and screen addict. 
chronic pain uh, from phys- from sitting all day at schools in front of TV, but also chronic pain, unfortunately, from a lot of violence in school, which then perpetuated the insomnia and anxiety and also depression. And it was just, it was like, uh, it was like, it was very, very emotionally raw and an un- felt very unsafe place to be. And it just kind of perpetuated on itself. And I just got sicker and sicker in this kind of non-standard Western pathology format. So both my parents, being medical doctors, didn't really see that having severe constipation for three to five days, every single was not, was nor- they saw it as normal. Uh, my diet was not good. It was a lot of like my lunches were SpaghettiOs and, you know, so, and uh, there, it, it was not, it, it wasn't a great, environment for me to grow. In fact, my, um, uh, I, it's the insomnia was so bad. It stunted my growth. I should be based on my father's height, my hand size and shoe size. I should be about five eleven, and I'm barely five, six. And, uh, that which then also beget more bullying and violence because I was a runt and highly stressed. I would walk around. They called me a kangaroo. Cause I would walk with what I know now is flexor dominance. Like I would walk so stressed out, my arms were bent and I was toe walking. And of course, going through neuro- my neurology training, I was like, oh, I was flexor dominant. Oh, that's what that was about. And the when I was a teenager, I decided to take control of my health through natural means because Western means and the unending push for psychiatric meds uh, wasn't helping. And so I started with uh, a book called Dr. Jensen's Guide to Better Bowel Care when I was 16, maybe even 17. I still have that book, dog-eared and sticky-noted and all the rest of it. And because my bowel issues were, were causing me so much distress and embarrassment, uh, and uh, found a mentor who was a brain gym consultant at the time, uh, just a form of kinesiology to help me understand that my thoughts, I, I actually have some say over how my thoughts affect my body. And I didn't know that. <laughs> and very long journey from there, but went to college, focused on pre-med and a holistic health program in the evenings and weekends, uh, basically because I wanted to be a naturopath. And then when I graduated, I realized that I would have broader scope and flexibility if I went to become a chiropractor. Because I basically do the same things naturopaths could at the time in the early 2000s. And so I went to chiropractic school, but basically was a naturopath disguised as a chiropractor as I was studying, just constantly taking, I don't know, I counted on average two to three weekend seminars a month for the entire duration of my graduate school and just plowing through neurology, nutrition, physiology, anatomy, adjusting, um, uh, functional medicine, et cetera, and really got heavy into neurology and uh, functional neurology seemed to really be a great fit. And if you know, you have to know just all the different fields to understand neurology, you know, the pathology, nutrition, biochemistry, biomechanics, physiology, microbiology, et cetera. And then went uh, further when I practiced in New Zealand for eight years. Uh, I, I got an acupuncture degree and then got very heavy into functional medicine, particularly when I turned back from New Zealand to the States, studied with people like Dr. Kalish with the Kalish Institute, certified there, certified with IFM, and then got very heavy into genetics. And the whole, the, the whole time I was continuing to repair 
myself from all of this, this harrowing 12 year period. And then working with people ranging from those that were chronically unwell to people who just want to maintain where they're at, like to aspirate, you know, health aspirants, what we would call the biohacker slash longevity slash life ex- and extension slash, um, it, I just call them health, health aspirants, people who don't know, who want to be optimal as opposed to just get out of something that's dragging them down or just merely maintain. And through that, my, pri- my primary focus has landed on using testing, just using testing to figure out what's going on figure out where the biochemical pathways have been broken, figure out the genetics, what are the underlying predispositions that people have been missed and just demystifying and making the complicated labs very practical to implement so that people can now make changes based on data as opposed to charisma, personality, you know, shiny new supplements, you know, whatever the latest, latest goji berry juice you're being told to squirt up your nose or whatever, just Go based on data. The goji juice may be great, may be fantastic, but not everyone needs the nasal insufflated goji juice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> my, 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 my passion right now is to help um, moms and entrepreneurs and mompreneurs, if you combine the two. And, and the reason why is that I, I grew up with uh, a very stressed out mompreneur. You know, she was a single mom. Jonathan, uh, my father paid child support, but was effectively absentee, but he did pay his share, you know, uh, and she stressed out single mom. Uh, uh, and she, by her own admission, made some decisions on my behalf that were not the best for my health and well-being. Now, full disclosure, she and I have a great relationship now. It took a number of years to reconcile, but she, she openly acknowledges that her, she was in a lot of physical pain and uh, she was not eating well. She was not sleeping well. She was not in her best state and it affected how she made decisions on behalf of her family in the not ideal way. And so instead of me shaking my tiny fist about how unfair that was, I pay it forward to some future version of myself by helping moms. If you help mom, you help the family as a general rule. And I also want to help entrepreneurs because if you help entrepreneurs, you help society because they're the vanguard of all the major changes to help improve our lives on balance. So those are the two people that I really wish to help. And the one of the unique ways that I can help is demystifying this concept of diet, which is everyone's got five opinions that change week to week, day to day, whatever it may be. But I think I've landed on a system to really help individualize diet based on all the different major factors, including genetics, including metabolic markers, including personal preference, including one's ability to access uh, and the logistical realities of the food and also one's wider concerns around earth politics, environment, and so on. And I think it's a really important conversation because nutrition is so confusing. It was actually the very first podcast that I did in the Myers Talks podcast, because uh, I mean, even, I mean, so many people begin their health journey with working on their diet and choosing their diet. And I just got my hands on the China study 
was one of the first diet books that I read and, um, and, uh, became vegetarian based on that. And actually back in the, the, nineties, I had the Pritikin diet. My dad and I were doing the Pritikin diet, which is like the no fat diet, which is like crazy. Um, and there's still Pritikin meals in the, the freezer section. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, it's so confusing to know what to eat in, uh, so tell us a little bit more about your framework and your concept around kind of a more like advanced and scientific approach to choosing the diet that's best for, for oneself. Sure. And, and there's just to give some context around framework, I want to add in like why diet, like just so that it's not, this is, I don't want this to be just another, here's my idea about a diet type thing. So I'll give I'll give a very stark example. Like, why is this important for people? Because I, I say it's, it's going to add, knowing your ideal diet, it's going to add five extra years to your life. It's going to add 50,000 extra dollars to your income. And it's going to also add 15 quality minutes a day. And here's why. Like my father, who, I mean, I don't know if you yourself or know of people that have dealt with family members that are aging and spiraling down in terms of neurodegeneration. My father is currently spiraling with dementia. And this is the same man who has two doctorates, wrote two books and has the MacArthur Genius Award. Yet today cannot remember what day it is or why, why he's walked upstairs or downstairs. And another term for neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's and dementia is type three diabetes, type three. So it sounds food related to me, just by the way it's been named. And the type three diabetes wasn't named by, you know, us, you know, holistic chiropractors, naturopaths, et cetera. That's a Western science term. So even it, right there, there's an admission that there's some, there's a nutritional component to all of this. And the five healthy extra years of life, if we can dial in the diet, then we can stave off whatever diet-related neurodegeneration, whatever that contributes to, can stave that portion off of it. And then the saving of, of money, like right now in 2021, the AARP calculated the average cost for memory care in the United States is $83,222 a year. Per person. Year. Per, per person. person. Wow. Per, so, so when I say like save fifty thousand dollars, I'm I'm quite literal. If neurodegeneration is on is on the docket there, and that's also not including that the money saved by you know some people make decisions when they're hangry, you know, <laughs> they're they're hangry. They're trading. Tea. They're trading crypto when they're hangry. Exactly. Well, I think there's more than hanger going on right now. <laughs> the day we're recording this. Um, so, so people make bad decisions when their diet is incongruent, you know, much, and if, and, and if they are able to eat a diet that's congruent with all these different factors, then they're able to make better decisions, make better business decisions, make not waste money on, on unnecessary diets or even just comfort foods. And if you stack that up year to year, day to, you know, decade to decade, that adds up quite a lot. Plus it will prevent any other uh, degenerative issues caused by an incongruent diet. So people can then earn more because they won't be making bad decisions that are based on hanger, foggy brain, or fatigue. Then there's the 50 minutes. Now there's, uh, I mean, that, like how many times a day I'd ask, ask the audience, like how many times a day uh, do you get up 
uh, and interrupt the task or project because you're foraging. You know, you take two minutes to go forward, forage in the fridge, just, you know, just in case like the fridge rearranged itself, you know, from when you last looked at it two hours ago. Yeah. You're looking for a food that's not in there. <laughs> yeah. Just double checking, you know, cause maybe, maybe it's like Schrodinger's cat. It's like Schrodinger's chocolate bar. Is the chocolate bar there? Or is yeah. It like, not? yeah. Like, you know, what's in there. You've already memorized it. You're just right, right. hoping maybe there's something else that's tasty and crunchy. <laughs> so so for, the, for those of you that missed the reference, the, the Schrodinger, it's a, it's a physics joke on Schrodinger's cat. So uh, is the cat there or not? Anyway, that's nerdy physics humor. Forget it. Uh, so the, the, there's the foraging. Now, if you take two minutes to forage, now, according to um, interruption science, that, that is a thing, interruption science, it takes on average 23 minutes and 15 seconds to recalibrate fully back to full focus, whatever task or project you were on. So when I say 15 minutes a day, I'm being literal. If, if people forage at least two times a day, two minutes each, plus the 23 minutes, 15 seconds to recalibrate. That's two 25 minute blocks or 50 minutes a day of low quality time. So if you know your ideal diet, you can return back 50 full minutes of quality time to your day. And if, if people are not concerned about neurodegeneration, like you're not worried about it, or like your, your parents are, are all past that and, and you're, there's no risk and whatever, it's fine. Maybe finances isn't a concern for some, of, for some people listening. Uh, but the 50 minutes, I think everyone can appreciate the benefit of that. So those are the meaningful reasons why to really look at ideal diet in a structured detailed, thorough way. Yes. So uh, what I can do is I can share, uh, I can share my screen because I have a visual on how to, on, on the five layers. So I'll just do this. So here's the five layers and I will just make this a little bit. There we go. So there's, there's five layers. There's the foundation is genetics. Now genetics is the platform of our optimal health and peak performance. If I'll give you, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, are you genetically keto? Are you genetically paleo? Or are you genetically Mediterranean? Or are you genetically high carb? The, the, there's, there's four different foundations. So if someone is keto genetically, but they're eating Mediterranean, which was my story, then they're, even though all the data says, oh, Mediterranean is great. It's the best. It's amazing. Yeah. Th that's a bell curve. It's amazing and, because it includes bread. <laughs> yeah. But what, what's interesting is that the bread in Europe is not the same bread. No, in this. Definitely not. And I've, I, you've, I'm sure you've had the experience of clients who have wheat, you know, gluten-based products in the States, Australia, or New Zealand, they have, or Canada, they have these weird gut-ish reactions where they go to like Italy and they have heirloom bread They're, the gut issues are a fraction, if anything, from what it was eating in the, you know, the, the Western hemisphere in Australia, New Zealand. Is that, has that been your experience? That has been my personal experience for sure. Okay. But so, just eating two croissants a day whenever, every month I'm going there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when in Rome, literally. Uh, <laughs> So the, the reason for our audience, the reason why that is, it actually came about because of a post-World War II uh, fear of starvation. So what, what happened in World War II, and this is the, the intentions of this, totally legitimate, and I think 
the intentions were good. There's just unforeseen consequences. So World War II, the world was in this hangover from World War II. So we don't want to risk starvation. So, uh, so what, there was a huge push to create pest-resistant wheat because wheat crops could lose half of its harvest to insects. So a Nobel Prize was given in 1951 to an Australian gentleman who figured out dwarf wheat, which was very, very, very pest resistant. Now, what was the innate insecticide within these wheats, within this new wheat strain? Lectins, high lectin content. So the same things that prevented insects from eating the wheat are now the bugaboos in the wheat that we eat today in America, Canada, you know, uh, Australia, New Zealand, that now hurt our guts. And this is where, you know, Dr. Gundry's work comes in, et cetera, like talking about the evils of lectins. Like, yes, lectins are damaging and so is starving. And there, there's all things trade-offs. And it also like not, not to, not to uh, justify Roundup, but it's just to give a, a bit of a balance that the very first patent on Roundup was actually not to kill weeds, but it was a desiccant. Because when you cut these, you know, Kansas-sized states worth of wheat, you're going to lose a ton of that harvest to rot. So that most of the Roundup is sprayed to desiccate or dry out the wheat so it doesn't rot or mold. Now, again, not justifying the toxicity of the product or the amount they've used or all the damage that's been caused and all the lawsuits that successfully gone through California. I think it was like this year, like last year, they finally won against uh, like the carcinogenic nature of Roundup. This is not to minimize that, but the, the reality is, is that starvation, no one cares about quality of food when you're starving. Yeah. Nobody. Mm-hmm. And, and, all, and again, it's a criticism. I have plenty of criticisms of the vegan movement. I have plenty of criticisms of the paleo movement that when you have the, the paleo people can only really exist because we're surrounded by a society that lives off of grains and dairy. <laughs> There's, that's, that's the little dirty secret of the paleo movement that, that all of this infrastructure and all this society that's allowing all of us to have uh, all the paleo stuff we have around us, unless you're in specific parts of countries where you can legitimately grow everything, you know, like in a biodynamic farm, that's all self-sustained, all the rest of it. Most of society runs on grains and dairy. So I, I'm hesitant to demonize, you know, uh, grains and dairy. All right. Even though I, I personally don't do well on grains and dairy. Yeah. But so, some people do. I mean, some people, some people are, are do fine with lectins. Absolutely. And some people do fine with dairy. So that's, and it's, that's what makes it confusing is you read Dr. Gundry's book or you read, you know, the China study or you read, and they all make these super convincing arguments uh, for that diet. Yeah. And, and even the China study, you know, Tim Ferriss put out a really damning blog uh, critiquing the China study, which was put together by a PhD student who worked with Dr. Campbell. Uh, it was, he worked with, no, no, did he work with Dr. Campbell? No, he was a vegan who tried to further prove, or it's all, it's, you can look up Tim Ferriss' China study and you'll read this PhD, just take it apart line by line. And, and you're right, just on the bigger picture, diet is confusing. And, and I can explain through this model, all those different variables. 
that we're, we're all taking into account. So, so with genetics, we have the genetic foundation. Are people keto, Mediterranean, high carb, or paleo? That's one layer. That's the carb tolerance. Then what we have is a layer, then within the genetics also, there's your genetic relationship to gluten and it's, and it's your risk for celiac, your genetic relationship to lactose, like are you able to handle uh, dairy? So the genetics layer, we've got paleo, keto, Mediterranean, high carb. That's the very first most important layer to figure out what is your carb tolerance. Now, the, signi the significance of that is enormous because if you have, if you're eating every meal of every day and you're eating in incorrectly for the amount of carbs you can genetically tolerate, that is a massive epigenetic influence on the whole rest of your day. So for example, I happen to be a low carb tolerance person. I was eating a perfect Portlandia Mediterranean diet. I knew the names <laughs> of my farmers, their chicken. <laughs> The, the, the quinoa was picked by left-handed monks on the last harvest moon. All of us soaked the grains, sprouted the quinoa, all the stuff. And I was still having really <laughs> embarrassing gut problems. Gut problems that would kill flies, melt paint, and empty <laughs> And the, yeah, so many yoga rooms. Anyway. So, and within, and I was teaching diet internationally at that point. So you talk about having imposter syndrome where I'm up there lecturing about diet and I'm farting on stage. So what, what well, happens- Aren't you supposed to fart though? I mean, if you eat fiber and beans and things like that, yeah, you're, you're supposed, you that's flies, your microbes are eating that. You're, you're, yeah, when you see flies go, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, there, there is a limit. <laughs> um, so- <laughs> When, when the walls start groaning and paint is coming my, <laughs> but within one week, when I got my genetics of my carb tolerance back within one week of, I figured, and I realized I had the second lowest carb tolerance possible within one week of changing my diet. One week, my digestive problems of 20 plus years went away. Mm -hmm. More importantly, my energy started to stabilize because here's what happens. If, if I'm a low carb person, but I'm eating a lot of carbs that are beyond my capacity. What happens is that I start to get like, I'm not like I have a high fast metabolism, meaning that food burns through me very, very quickly. So if I have higher carbs, but lower protein and fat as a ratio, then I'm going to have quick energy. But what's also going to happen is that I'm going to be tired and grumpy or hangry about two hours later. Now, the flip side of that is that if I am a higher carb person and I have a higher fat and protein diet that's incongruent with my uh, genetics, what's gonna happen is that I'm going to feel full, but I'm gonna be tired and lethargic and kind of blah. So, there, the, if you're not dialed in, what happens is that you're either going to be hungry and agitated two hours later if you're eating too many carbs and not enough fat and protein, or if you're eating too much fat and protein beyond your genetic capacity, then you're going to be like, like wanting to fall asleep like it's Thanksgiving. That's why it, it's more than just like dealing with gas. It's, it's much more than that. 
So that's the primary layer of the genetics. And then there's these other nuances of genetics also, like are, can you genetic, are you genetically at risk for celiac? Meaning does gluten trigger, are you in danger of certain genes that would trigger uh, celiac? So gluten is off the table for those people. Are you genetically vulnerable to lactose? Meaning you should not do dairy unless you want to spend the money on the lactate. But even then you may be reactive to casein and whey. So dairy may not be a good idea anyway, even if you can digest lactose. Then there's the issue of coffee. Now, coffee, um, you know, I went down the rabbit hole that coffee with coconut milk is good for me or extract or whatever, because everyone seems to be saying it. And uh, I tried to make the most bulletproofy coffee like ever. I had, I, th I have my ingredient list listed down, but it was, it was, it was coffee, all the purest stuff. It was coffee, it was coconut oil, it was coconut milk, cardamom, cinnamon, licorice root, um, ashwagandha. Oh, it sounds so healthy. Cinnamon, clove. <laughs> uh, it was uh, turmeric. It was like this Moroccan chai, uh, cocoa powder, mochaccino thing. Like it was, it was, when you got the ratios right, it was like ambrosia. But here's the thing. I was confusing anxiety for energy because there's a genetic predisposition for certain people that to get quote caffeine induced anxiety and depression, caffeine induced anxiety and depression. Yeah. Like their liver can't metabolize exactly. it uh, quickly enough. Yeah. CYPG like there's, there's two major genes that are involved with it. And uh, I happen to be uh, borked <laughs> with both. Bork is a, is a, a tongue in cheek neurology term for uh, not doing well. Yeah, and I, I was very technical. My, uh, my, so I was confusing anxiety for energy, and that that's a really important thing for everyone to sit and ponder. When you have caffeine, do you have energy or is it anxiety? And I came off coffee once I got my genetics back. Until I saw my genetics, I was like, okay, I can't deny this anymore. I just thought, okay, just more coconut oil and more this and more that. Nope. It, mm -mm. So I switched to uh, caffeine-free alternatives that have the same one. I love the taste of coffee. Love it. And so I've, I've switched to caffeine-free alternatives. There is a dosage curve. So if people do get Swiss water method, organic freeze-dried coffee, that's like one one-hundredth the amount of caffeine or something in that. So there is, there's a dosage curve there. But- you know, my, the genes changed my life in that respect with coffee, with carbs. You can also now check genetically if you're sensitive to histamines. Now, histamines are really fascinating. Some people are fine. Some people are fine with coffee. Some people are fine with histamines. But people who are not, here's the thing on histamines. This has been a major discovery in my clinical practice. I know histamines have been around for a while, but from the genetic standpoint, so let's, what are histamines? When, when, when a bee stings your arm, okay, a single bee did not inject a half quart of water into your arm that's swelling it up. That, that's not what's happening. It's the immune system mediated by the histamines that are rushing flooding water in to that area of the bee sting to do what? Dilute the toxic venom from corroding and eroding your tissues. So it's a logical response to dilute the toxic venom. So if you have an exuberant histamine response, the 
a bee sting will create a massive water rush in order to dilute those toxic chemicals. And if you don't have enough histamine, then that venom can really do a lot of damage. But if you have too much histamine reaction, then the swelling can then impede on blood vessels, joints, and cause its own problems. So it's, it's this constant balancing act with nature. So what about high histamine foods or histamine releasing foods or foods that block the degrading of histamine? And if you are genetically vulnerable to histamine, you have those foods, what happens is you basically have this slow moving, diffuse, globalized bee sting reaction in your body, which means what? Your whole body is putting on water weight. That's, and, and you're getting the immune responses and all the rest of it, but you're putting on water weight. That's one sign of being reactive to histamine. And this is weight that won't go away with more exercise. It won't. And this is the, that frustrating layer of weight that washes out muscle tone for all, all these people out there who are frustrated, like I'm exercising, I'm, I think I'm eating well, like I'm doing all the quote right things, but I just can't get rid of this inflammatory water weight. You may be genetically vulnerable to histamines and eating histamine high food. One of the one food that is reactive with histamine, unfortunately, is chocolate. And some people make it. No, that's not that's not an ingredient. That's a food group. You know, that's a, that's yeah. that's medicine. Yeah. You know, I just did three cacao ceremonies this morning. You know, it's <laughs> so histamines are, if you're genetically vulnerable, when I, when I run these tests on people, if people are genetically vulnerable to histamines, I put them on a very low histamine diet temporarily for like three, four months. And we, we, everyone, everyone can suffer through three, four months of restriction of certain foods if they are motivated to achieve the goals they want to based to, to improve their health and other performance goals. And we can just see the changes and then we can modify, you know, it's almost like a elimination diet, like bring in one, like a favorite thing occasionally on a four day rotation or something. So it's not like we're going to deprive people permanently. Some things like if they're risk for celiac, yeah, we're off gluten permanently. I mean, unless you may go to Europe and, and, you know, modify what type of gluten you're getting. So there, those are the, there's also genetics of, uh, your eating behaviors. So some people are super tasters and bitter. And if you're a super taster and bitter, which means you're very acutely aware of the taste of bitter, that means you're going to avoid cruciferous vegetables. People can, you can like, just, you know, everyone's had that, that what aviation themed food trauma from childhood. Here comes the plane, you know, uh, here's the gnarliest Brussels sprout coming right at you. And if people are super tasters to bitter, they're going to avoid healthy vegetables. So I mean, isn't that like a, a pretty big percentage of the population? I thought it was like 25%. It's a meaningful percentage. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I should, I just, I'm blanking at the moment, but it's a meaningful percentage. Now the trade-off is, is that if you're a super taster, you also don't like many beers, a certain wines um, and coffee, but you also avoid bitter green vegetables. Now the, the, those things can be healthy, uh, and what you do is if, if you do need to have more of those green vegetables, but you're super tasty, you don't change your willpower, you change your environment. There's four separate ways to change the flavor of foods through cooking to make the bitter flavors go away. And so you don't have to force yourself. You just change the culinary environment. Now, some of you may be thinking, why is there variation on bitter? Well, again, if you go back to hunter gatherer times, there's all things trade-offs. So 
things that were bitter as hunter-gatherer generally were poisonous. So that's why the cranial nerve nine, which is detects bitters in the very back of the tongue. And you can detect four parts per million for bitter. You're very, very sensitive to bitter. And it's right the last thing before it goes down the throat. So if things were bitter, you instinctively knew to spit to not eat them. But some bitter foods are healthy. And so there's, there's this trade-off between you're at a higher risk of swallowing something poisonous if you don't have the bitter sensitivity as much, but you're also going to avoid certain healthy vegetables also. So it's, it's an all things trade-offs. And it's also one reason why um, in Europe, especially they have bitters at the beginning of the meal, which I think is very smart because bitter taste cranial nerve nine, that bitter in the back of the tongue will trigger cranial nerve 10 to increase enzymes, peristalsis, acid secretion, all the rest of it. So the reason why that works is that bitters will help with digestions because the, the body from millions of years of evolution is like, okay, dummy, if you're going to swallow something bitter, that's probably poisonous. We're going to drown this thing in acid. And then we're going to dispose of it through enzymes and all the rest of it. It's like, fine, you can take something bitter. We want to survive despite your best efforts. We're going to do our best to stop this, whatever poisonous thing you potentially swallowed from doing its damage. So we're actually hijacking that evolutionary reflex to improve our digestion by intentionally having things that are safe and bitter. Hence why I think it's smart to have your bitters up and salads up front at the beginning of the meal. So that's the genetics, carb tolerance, food, uh, the, the, the carb tolerance bit. Are you, you have any food triggers and also wiring eating behaviors? as well. So that's the genetic foundation. The second layer is therapeutic. So some people may have their ideal diet like keto or high carb, but they're wrapped in what I call metabolic barbed wire, metabolic barbed wires. So for example, if someone is genetically keto, yet they have a current meaningful issue with their gallbladder or gut or mitochondria, like their carnitine shuttles messed up or their mitochondria itself is inefficient, camper and fat, whatever in that cascade of fat digestion, absorption, and utilization, if that fat cascade is broken, damaged, impaired in some way, if you eat high fat, you're going to feel way off. Even though genetically you're suited to be high fat, you can't metabolically use it. So that's what I mean by metabolic barbed wire. This is where functional testing comes in to check gut testing, uh, mitochondria, et cetera, to see, can we defang this barbed wire to then you can now use fat, which is ideally suited for your particular genetic predisposition for high fat. On the other side, we have metabolic barbed wire, for example, at the high carb area. So if someone's genetically high carb, but they have candida, you feed them carbs, the fungus is going to bloom and it's going to feel awful. But if you feed them a low carb diet to avoid the feeding the candida, they're also going to feel awful because it's incongruent with their genetics. And again, this goes to what do we do on this therapeutic layer to defang this barbed wire? That's where the functional tests come in, gut testing, hormone testing, mitochondria testing, whatever it may be, whatever be necessary. That's where functional testing comes in is that the therapeutic layer. If, and this is, if, if people listening, if you're someone, if you are someone that has tried, quote, all the diets and none of them seem to work long-term, 
then you probably are having meta, uh, an issue where you have a genetic predisposition that is wrapped in metabolic barbed wire. And you can try to deal with the top layer, but it's in conflict with the bottom layer or vice versa. And that's why some people listening may have never found a diet that's ever worked. Not because one diet isn't good for you. It just has to be layered surgically to then break through all this barbed wire to then get to the genetic layer. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is a huge, like a mental framework. I, I just figured out like last month, this term metabolic barbed wire which suddenly made sense of all these things that I've seen clinically. So we've got the genetic layer, then we've got the therapeutic layer. Then the next layer to determining someone's optimal diet is personal preference. It's personal preference. You know, I can figure out the perfect diet for you, but if you're not going to have it because it grosses you out or whatever, then it's not, doesn't make sense. I'll, I'll give you a very real example. Insects are likely to be the food of the future. And there's three times as much minerals and nutrients in cricket as there is in beef. Now the organ meat in beef, I would disagree. I think, I think organ meat competes quite, quite nicely with the cricket. Uh, and when you look at a cricket, what are you basically eating? The entire, all the organs of the cricket, you know, which is basically one little tiny hopping piece of organ meat. And, uh, but a lot of people, especially in the West, don't eat insects culturally. Many other cultures don't do, they, they do eat insects, but, but we don't in general. So there's also religious restrictions. There's also cultural norms. Uh, there, there's that, I mentioned that kind of tongue in cheek, the aviation, you know, childhood aviation themed food trauma. And here comes the plane. Like some people just like do not eat vegetables because they just, they get triggered from five years old. So there, there's a personal preference aspect to this. And uh, that has to be taken seriously. It has to, it's the compassionate response to Now, are there some unreasonable personal preferences? Of course there are. Like, oh, I just, I just refuse to eat a certain thing because I don't want to, but there's no hit. It's, it's just some solidarity thing. And within reason, fine. We can find reasonable substitutes, but personal preference is a reality. And people's preferences change over time. They, they change. So the fourth layer out beyond personal preference is access. Do you have access to the foods that meet your needs? Genetically, therapeutically, personally, do you have access? So many people are, with, are within what's called food deserts. There is no farmer's market. Or if there is a farmer's market, there's not really any uh, organic farmers. Or maybe if there are, you don't have the financial access to that. Or if there is an organic farmer, there's only one and they bring out only okra and tomatoes seasonally. This happened to me when I was living in Dallas. When I was in chiropractic school in Dallas, there was one organic farmer at one farmer's market, 25 minutes away. And I was like, I was such a diehard. I was living off of okra and tomatoes because I only wanted organic farmer's market. And it was, and, and then the, the cheapest organic vegetable at Whole Foods I could find was cabbage. <laughs> so, so uh, th there's an access issue. Uh, access can also mean time. Do you have the time to source, shop, prep, cook, clean, reset every meal? A lot of people, like single moms, what I grew up with, time was a reality. So many decisions were made based on the time. Uh, SpaghettiOs for lunch 
was the most convenient thing time-wise for my mother to do. I can understand and have compassion for that decision with this framework and not get so how dare you, how could you from my pedestal of being this functional health, natural medicine nerd. You know, there's just a reality of, of access and all of us handle our access needs in through different strategies there. Uh, when uh, I'll give you an example, I have some friends that live in Puerto Rico and it's very hard right now in Puerto Rico to get local, fresh, organic, reasonably priced food, vegetables consistently. Very hard. So that's, that's, that's another example of access. Then there's travel. When people are traveling, that's a whole different layer of complexity. I was on the road for a year and a half when I was traveling around teaching chiropractors how to pass their national registration exams. That was an entire process when people are on the road, like entrepreneurs are traveling, uh, even eating out. If you're doing social engagements or, or having business meals or, or family time or whatever, eating out is its own complexity around access. So it's like finding the right restaurants, but even just knowing what to order on the menu, knowing what to have removed from specific items, that's an access issue. So this is, this is the access piece. It's, it's not based on testing. It, it's just based off of just pure logistics, time, act, time, energy, finances, and your current circumstances. And then that, so that's the access portion. Then the, the final uh, top layer is what I call earth. And this is how your food choices affect your community, the economy, and the environment. Now, I know there's plenty of people listening that will say, well, that's the most important layer. And I would say, no, I say the most important layer is your genetics. You figure out what works best for you, and then you adapt your wider concerns to that. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to just touch on a very sensitive topic, and I'm just going to drop a couple things for people to think about. And I don't want any, you know, vegans throwing kales like ninja stars at me, you know, <laughs> so just, just. We're just, just hang with me here. Now, uh, uh, from one measurement, one pound of beef takes about 1,900 gallons of water to make for one pound of beef. Now, that is big agriculture or big agro beef, according to one calculation. Almonds take 1,900 gallons of water as well to make one pound of almonds. Now, I have read calculations from 100% pasture-fed and finished beef, just beef that's just wandering around with big enough pasture, just doing its thing, no pesticides, no nothing, it's just wandering around, fertilizing the soil like all the buffalo used to, et cetera, et cetera. When you do the calculations, and this is, uh, it comes down to about 150 gallons of water per pound of pasture-fed and finished beef. I'm not talking about the pasture-fed that's gone, sent off to the last couple of months or whatever it's left to be fattened up with corn and all the rest of it. I'm not talking about that. So that's 150 gallons of water. Now for perspective, uh, corn, rice, and wheat take about, or maybe it's soy, rice, and wheat. It's one, of the, one, the, one of those big, it's, it's, it's one of the three, corn, rice, wheat, or soy. I can't remember. It's one of the three of these four. Each of them are about 300 gallons of water per pound. So I'm inviting the people who are insistent that all meat drains water to ask the questions about, okay, is it meat 
or is it access? Is it access to the right quality meat, the beef that doesn't require 1900 gallons of water? Yeah, I think it's a lot actually- of the statistics, like in the vegetarian and vegan books, I used to be vegetarian and vegan. I think a lot of statistics are cherry picked uh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So my, my, so it comes down to an access issue and I'm not saying, oh, you have to go start eating beef right now. I'm saying that, and cause not all beef is that 15, 150 gallons of water per pound. Cause that's like, I, I like, look where I am. There's plenty of pasture fed and fit. Like I have a, I have a quarter cow. I go through, you know, several times a year. I buy it in bulk directly local from the farmer, know the farmer, know the cow, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's that. It, it, it is possible, but it's an access issue. So when we look at the five layers, we have genetics as the foundation, then there's a therapeutic layer to see if you've got some metabolic barbed wire. If you need a temporary diet based on labs to, to defang those barbed wires, so you can access your genetic potential there, your genetic platform. Then you've got personal preference, access, and then earth. That's the five layers in order for someone to truly identify their personalized ideal diet. And the model accounts for changes in one's life circumstance and health. So if someone moves somewhere else and suddenly their access changes, then the the model accounts for that. Your ideal diet may have to shift based on your access. If you go travel and you get food poisoning and suddenly you're dealing with a hidden infection, you're now in the therapeutic layer. And now you've got uh, this therapeutic layer to defang that barbed wire and dealing with the infections there. If your personal preferences change, if your uh, uh, understandings of that the earth layer of how community economy and politics and environment work, it, it accounts for all of that flexibility as people change through the course of their life. So an ideal diet is not static except for your genetic layer. That doesn't change. That's the platform, but everything else you can adapt as needed into this model. So when you're working with clients, what kind of genetics testing are you doing? There's 23andMe and there's Ancestry.com. Like what, what are you doing? The carbon tolerance test is not something you can extract from a 23andMe or Ancestry panel because it's a completely different style of test. There's, it's not checking for a variant analysis, which is a nerd speak for good gene, bad gene, middle, middle you know, mixture, good and bad the so-called green, yellow, red dot. People who've gotten 23 ancestry, they've seen green, yellow, red dot, or, or the technical term is homozygous variant, variant, heterozygous variant, or normal variant, et cetera. That's not what I'm talking about with the carb tolerance. There's a three-dimensionality to genetics that very few people know about. It's called copy number analysis. It's not the variant of a gene. It's the number of duplicates of a gene the duplicates. So the particular gene I'm talking about is the gene that secretes the enzyme that breaks down carbohydrates and saliva. And if you've got one copy of this gene, you make one X the amount of this enzyme, like a cannon shooting from a fork, these little carb cutting scissors. So it's one cannon. If you have two copies of this gene, you have two cannons, each firing at the same rate. If you have three cannons, you have three cannons firing. If you have 15 cannons, you have 15 firing. They're all firing at the same rate. Whether you have one cannon or 15, all of them are firing at the same rate. So someone with 15 cannons, 15 copies of this enzyme, has 15x the amount of enzyme to break down carbohydrates. It's linear. Now, I am a two. (laughs) The second lowest possible. It's it's the same as an Inuit, uh, Aborigines, 
uh, Native American cultures that did not grow up with uh, grains. You know, that there was a genetic pressure, local genetic pressure, because there's not a lot of grains around. There's lower and lower need for these amyloids. Whereas conversely, the average uh, copy number for this gene in China is eight because it's, it's been a rice culture for 5,000 years. And uh, rice actually inhibits this enzyme. So they've had to layer on extra copies of this gene in order to make up for the loss from the eating of rice from the rice suppressing it. So the uh, in Europe is about five to six plus or minus on average. Uh, my ancestry came from the northern latitudes of Europe, from the Eastern Bloc, from the Eastern Bloc countries. So the, the farther north you go, the fewer grains are there, and the more you have to hunt, you know, large animals with fat and meat on them with a tiny stick. So that's that makes sense, you know, genetically where it makes sense genetically how there can be certain pressures. Now, what 23andMe and Ancestry don't do is this type of analysis because it's a completely set of genetic analysis. So it's a separate swab. It's a separate process. Once you have that, that genetic, once you have your carb tolerance, then you can then adapt uh, systematically what, what the ratios are of carbs are to your meals and then, then adapt all your other concerns around that. Okay, great. And, and what are some of those common mistakes that people make when they're, they're you know, determining their optimal diet? Because there, there's so many factors involved. And, I, and people make, they try so many different diets and try to see what works for them. And people find that they're just mm. not, not feeling well in these different diets. What, what are they doing wrong? The, the biggest thing that people do wrong is they get locked into magic bulletism. They get locked into fin food fanaticism. They think this is the one true diet and there's not a framework to temper this absolutism that comes with diet. That's why I have that, that five-part structure. And another way to think about it, maybe not in a five-layer system, it's, just, it's a series of Venn diagrams that overlap. So there's your carb tolerance, food triggers, like, like histamines or caffeine sensitivity. There's the therapeutic realm. Act, act, like there's all these intersecting circles and when people lock onto one diet, they can lose track of all the other complexities that intersect with their personal needs. That's the single biggest issue with, with diet is, is this rigid absolutism. And I, I personally have seen so much friction around food that I feel that this model, these five layers can create, you know, end the food fight, basically end the food fight and create peace and common ground between people as opposed as vegans and, and paleos, because there, there's so much overlap between different health oriented diets, like local and seasonal and, and fresh and clean and all, all the rest of it. And, you know, my charge, my charge to the vegans is like, okay, you deal with the GMO stuff. And my charge to the paleos is like, you deal with factory farming. And we all agree on all the rest, like literally we agree on all the rest. And you take on that little thing and we'll take on this little thing. It's not so little in either case, but, but we can now be working together instead of fighting each other because we all know what our jobs are. And we agree on literally everything else. I was in a, I had an email spat with uh, one of New Zealand's most famous vegans and he got all in my face about 
speaking out against some of the problems with veganism. And I just wrote him an email, just like, look, here's the 15 things we agree on. And I went, in no particular order. We just disagree on this last, these last little edge cases. Is it broccoli or beef? I sent it out. He emailed me very quickly. He said, you're right. You're right. We, we do agree on all of this. And we, we can actually work together now. And this is like, this, that was a really significant email uh, to get from him. And I feel that the, the biggest mistake is othering people who have a different diet. That's a huge mistake. Food is meant to bring us together. Food, the basis of culture is food. When you, when you, what, it is the basis but of culture. But people get fanatic. Like they get, like, it's like their diet is like the religion almost. And I certainly have not been, you know, immune to that. You know, when you, I first became vegetarian, I bought the China study for all my friends and uh, you become like kind of like a fanatic. Like this is healthy and it's working for me. You want to share it with everyone. And I think you have to be careful. also when there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, health influencers out there and they promote one specific diet, it's because that diet works for them. And it may not work for you. And so it's very hard to kind of navigate uh, all that when you're, you're just starting out in your health journey. I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, I, I feel that we are in a place where we can't real, the, the risks are too high and the, the stakes are too high and the tools for being aggressive with each other are too powerful to be fighting and creating friction over things like food. Yeah. And we, we need a framework that is, that is accounts for individual needs, that they're, they're changing needs and, and creates a broader understanding of how people's diets is unique. And yet, if the filters are the same for everyone, the process of figuring out is the same. There's a common humanity that we can all unite behind in figuring out our individual unique diets and not be at each other's throats. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dr. Shea, tell us uh, your website and, and how people can work with you to determine their optimal diet and the other ways that you work with people helping them with weight loss, et cetera. Absolutely. So my main website is just drsamshay.com, D-R-S-A-M-S-H-A-Y.com. And on there, there's, I've got a free eBooks. I've got um, more of my background. I also do stand-up comedy as a hobby. There's links to my stand-up comedy playlist. There's also a way to contact me, but as of this recording, I'm still uh, accepting uh, free 15 minute chats with people that if they schedule on some of my calendar, if they are lab oriented, I just want to make that very clear. I work with people who are interested in labs, genetics and therapeutic. Like that's, so if, if labs aren't your thing, I'm not, not the um, coach for you. Uh, there's also, if people want a more in-depth understanding on these five layers, there's, uh, I created a free e-guide. It's just drsamshay.com forward slash ideal dash diet dash e-guide. That's all, that's all one word. And that's going to be a, a guide that walks through the five layers in more detail. So people have a better understanding of what that's about. Okay. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Shea, thank you so much for joining us on the Meyer She Talks podcast. That was so good because I know so many people are confused about diet. It's a very basic thing you need to focus on uh, with your health, at least physically. And, uh, and it's something that it's, people are very, very confused. Even people that have been, you know, studying health for a long time, 
can still be confused about diet they should eat because they've tried so many things. Uh, so that was, that was really educationally enlightening. So thanks Dr. Shea for, for sharing that with us. Thank you, Wendy. I, I, I love chatting with you. You're, 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 this, I really admire people uh, such as yourself who are putting themselves out there, educating the public in such a scalable way and giving, giving the public the benefit of the doubt that I love long form podcasts that you can just sit down or, or do whatever errands or whatever, and just listen. And just this, this process, like people like you putting out all of these, inf- all of this information for people to digest, pun intended, is making us all better. And uh, I hope to have a podcast soon one day. And I, I really uh, admire people like yourself who have really gone through the hard yards to educate the public at scale. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Shea. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just uh, really a, a gift. Uh, to be able to do this every day and to, to help you guys. And it's, you know, what I was looking for, you know, when I started my health journey, there were, weren't podcasts, you know, 20 years ago, <laughs> but, but, you know, so I really appreciate everyone that's tuning in every week uh, to, to get an education and, and the messaging that I'm trying to get out there. That's really just, uh, you know, you have to focus on the physical, but we need to think beyond that with uh, the energetic body and, and the mm-hmm. emotional detoxification and working on emotional trauma as well. Which Absolutely. What we, we talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 a whole other that's a whole other discussion. There's a whole uh, like all, all those other pieces. Like I have a ten pillars model that accounts for all those other. We just we just focus today on like genetics and diet yes. and all that. You have to. We want to do a deep dive today exactly. on no diet more. and genetics. And I fully agree with you. There's way more complexities yeah. than just figuring out diet that yeah. go into optimal health and performance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in today to the Myers Detox Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers, and I really appreciate you guys again tuning in every week. And thanks for thanks for sitting down and taking the time. And uh, I will see you guys next week. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.